following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. So, I will go ahead and warn you that the last time I preached this particular passage of Scripture, I ran over and I had one of the deacons in the back waving me down, indicating that we were running over time and the pot roast was burning. So being that it's Mother's Day, you may want to text Mama or Grandma and tell her to turn the crock pot down to warm. We may be here for a moment. Okay. So having gotten that out of the way, our passage is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, and if you are one who likes to write down titles on your sermon notes, the title of this message is Mercy is Offered Freely. Mercy is Offered Freely. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read our passage, and we'll begin. Dearest Father, we thank you that you offer mercy to us that you offer wisdom to us, that you offer your spirit to us, that you offer salvation to us, that you offer so many blessings to us. We do not deserve them. And we pray, Lord, that today as we hear your word preached, we may be drawn closer to you, to your love for us, and to your salvation lived out in us. For as your name we pray, amen. All right. So we're going to be in Isaiah 55, that's sort of in the middle-ish of the Bible. Uh, uh. <clears throat> come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, let him come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And wages... For that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mentions, mercies may show to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which does not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way and the unrighteous person his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, your, way, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it to produce and sprout and provide seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I have sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led in peace 
The mountains and the hills will break into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the juniper will come up, and instead of the stinging nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign which will not be eliminated. So this passage is important to me because at various different points in my life, it has come back to remind me of the faithfulness of God. And since this sermon series is called Testify, and it's about our testimony, and I have to go way, way back because I am older than Vince and Jordan, and not just taller than them, um, uh, I have had a long course of life with the Lord. I am one of those people that has benefited from growing up in a family which led me to the Lord at a very early age. But that didn't mean that everything was easy. And this kind of passage repeats and comes back into my life at various key points and reminds me of the truths of God's mercy freely given. So we're going to kind of walk in more of a narrative style. I've been accused by some of you who've heard my preaching before as being a little bit too academic intellectual, so I'm mixing it up today. We're trying something new, and uh, we're going to go in more of a narrative style. I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse, and we're going to talk about my testimony and some, uh, some, other, some other things that I've gleaned um, from around me recently. Uh, I will warn you, I pulled a lot of this off of Twitter, so beware. Okay, so no, it's fine. no they're, they're, they're good quotes. All right, so, you there, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, eat, come and buy wine and milk without money that does not cost. Our society is obsessed with money, right? All around us, we're thinking about money, right? I, I turn on the news in recent days, and all I hear about is inflation is out of control. Food prices are going up. Who can build a house because there's no lumber to buy, right? We, we're obsessed that our society is on the verge of collapse, collapse as any moment. And I think that's because money is the American religion, A Christian philosopher, his name is David Bentley Hart, recently was quoted. He, he wrote an article and then it was quoted out um, by several different people. And this is the quote. Contrary to contrary wisdom, Christianity has never really taken deep root in America or had any success in forming American consciousness. In its place, we have invented a kind of orphic mystery religion of personal liberation sustained by the cult of money. And in that article, he talks about how everything in our society has been touched and contaminated by our lust for money. And Jesus, here in this passage, throws that into stark relief because he says, that which you need the most, your sustenance, I will give you for free. And he gives everything for free. I recently heard someone say, why is it that we teach children about money? 
because they are provided everything for free. The land has always been there, and we grow the crops, and we didn't do anything, and we harvest those crops, and then we give them to one another for exchanges of people, pieces of paper. Why is it that we created money in the first place? And it's because we want to control our destiny. We want to be in control of our lives. That, from the very beginning in Genesis, is the human problem in this world. That we, from the very start, have said, we don't trust you, God. Right? God said in the garden, I have given you all of these trees for free. Eat as much as you want to, except from this one. This is my tree. Don't eat from it. Do you think about that? All the different types of fruits and vegetables and produce. I don't even know what we've lost in the flood from the miracle garden that God created for Adam and Eve. They had more than enough food to sustain them and their children and their children's children. That was the promise. All they had to do was take care of the garden and, and guard it and, and protect the animals and protect the plants. And they would be provided everything they needed. But what did they want to do? Oh, you don't want me to touch, eat this tree? I'm going to eat it. You're not going to tell me what to do, God. And the problem with that is because we have gone from that moment, generation after generation after generation, from society, from society, across our planet, trying to take back control of the universe from the God who created it. And how has that turned out for us? Not pretty good, right? We're doing a horrible job with it, right? right? I mean, and you can think about it in how many different ways we are messing it up. And we mess it up from the beginning. Vince made reference to my little boy whose name is Lewis. He is two months old and two years and two months old as of last week. And he is his father and his mother's child. Because our parents remind us every time we complain about him. <laughs> because he is what is called a strong-willed child. Just like his mother and just like his father. Right? And what's funny about that is that he's strong-willed about things that are hurting him, right? The worst thing that you can do to my little boy is to try to change his diaper. You might as well be skinning him alive with a vegetable peeler, <laughs> right? He does not want that, right? But it's not good for him. If, if you don't do that, if we don't take care of him, he will get sick, he will get very sick, and he will die. Right? If we just leave him to, 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 to the squalor and the filth that he wants to live in, he will not do well. Huh. I wonder if we're like that. 
right? And so from the very beginning, we see emerging in our children this desire to take control back from those that love them. All right? Now, let's go to the the next verse, verse 3. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So, as a small child, I was a strong-willed child, but I was a fairly obedient child. I listened to my parents when I wanted to and did what that was. But one day in church, which was sort of my second home, and one I hope that my son will also think of as his second home and his second family. I heard for the first time at the age of six something that finally clicked in my brain. That all of those disobedient and bad things that I did were separating me from the God who loved me. Right? And it finally clicked in my little child's brain that I needed this thing called salvation. I needed to accept the mercy that God was was giving me freely. And he was calling through his word, through my parents, through through our church, through his people, For me to come to him, to listen and to live. Right? We we like I said with my little boy, the problem is he doesn't want to listen to what is good for him. And we also are like that. So As a small child, I didn't really fully understand what that meant. I knew a little bit from vacation Bible school and Sunday school and my parents and the picture books and things like that about this place called heaven where Jesus lives, right? And and that's where the good people go. And that's where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be separated from those that I loved. I didn't want to be separated from the God I loved. But that's not the full story of the gospel, That's not the purpose of the whole book is for you to go to a warm, cottony, fun land where Jesus is, right? It's not for you to get some sort of punch card for your fire insurance so you don't go to the down there bad place, right? That's not the point, right? We're laughing But that's the way that so many people think that the Christian religion works. They think it's this mamby-pamby thing for kids that we are too smart for, that we're too good for, that we don't need. So let's jump into the harder verses here. Verse 4. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the people. Now, what's interesting about this verse is when we read it in the light of the story of the gospel, what we call the gospels in the Bible, right? The story of Jesus teaching us about what the gospel was and displaying it all the way to the end in his life. And if you remember, the end of the story is not so good for Jesus in those last few chapters of the Gospels, right? 
Because that part of the story is Jesus going the way that none of us want to go. Beaten, flogged, crucified, and dead. I will make him a witness to the people. What they didn't understand was when they lifted Jesus up, everyone could finally see what he was talking about. But they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it. No one understood what he was teaching us. They thought the cross was a witness of Roman power. Right? The cross, Jesus is not the only person in history that was crucified. You go and study your Roman history, thousands of people were crucified across the Roman Empire. Sometimes thousands of people were crucified across the Roman Empire in a single year. Whenever there was a revolt or a rebellion, anytime anyone challenged Roman power, guess what? They got lifted up for everyone to see. And that's what they did to Jesus. Look at your king of the Jews, who's dead. Who's the king of the Jews now? The cross was a witness of God's curse to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They thought by lifting up Jesus and leaving him overnight, they would prove according to Deuteronomy that God did not approve of what Jesus was saying. And they were sending their own message of power and control. But guess what? Jesus flips the script. He took that Roman power and revolutionized it. And within hundreds of years, all that Rome had built, he had conquered. And it was a Christian empire from coast to coast. And everything the Jewish leaders said was a curse, Christ has made a blessing. All right? The cross was in the end a witness of our salvation. Now later today, we're going to take communion. And in communion, we reenact in some small memorial way the last supper that Jesus takes. And what's interesting is that he says, I have desired greatly to eat this with you. Right? You know that Jesus, being God, seeing the thousands of years of history leaning up to this day, in the last day knows that every single moment means something. And he says, this thing means something. You're going to use this when I go back to the Father to remember what I have done. The communion is the witness to the people's. Verse five, verse, hold on, yeah, verse five, I get closer, so my glasses are not focused enough. Anyway, behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which does not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. We, we forget in the, when we remember the communion, particularly when we do it the way that we do it here at Love City, which is weekly remembrance, that the communion originates in the Passover meal, which is itself a memorial of an event of God's salvation. God does not work in coincidences, people. He knew exactly in time when he was going to do this thing. Okay? 
So the blood of the covenant that Jesus talks about throughout the gospel, but then most importantly in the, in the communion, in the Last Supper, is the blood of promise. The blood of promise that God is going to protect you, Israelites, when the destroyer comes. Right? Go back into your exodus. Right, The, the Israelites have lived for 400-something years in slavery to Egypt. Again, the most powerful empire of their day. And God, and God, through Moses, says to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the world, you're going to let these people go. And Pharaoh laughs. And Moses is like, okay. And ten plagues ensue. And if you actually read it, Pharaoh and Moses have this conversation a couple of times. Hey, Pharaoh, let your people go, and I'm going to let the land get healed, and you're not going to all die. And he's like, no. Okay. Blood and lice and frogs and hail. Let my people go. No. Okay. But how, are, how often are we like that? How many times does God have to crack our skull on the side of the head with a spiritual two-by-four before we get it? In the end, in the last plague, God took a severe punishment on the people. He said, this plague is going to be stronger and worse than all the others because I'm going to take your firstborn sons from you. Right? But the Israelites didn't suffer that punishment because they painted the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. Let's just review what we're talking about here. A firstborn son who was killed to save the people. Blood lifted high upon the wood. Everybody track it with me thus far? God does not work in coincidences, people. And when they leave the Exodus, the firstborn sons of all the Israelite tribes are dedicated to the Lord. And then God says, you know what? I'm actually going to take this tribe, the tribe of Levi, to myself. I'm going to make them the ones that redeem your sons so that you don't have to give up your sons. I'm going to take for myself one that will redeem you. Anybody paying attention? God does not work in coincidences. And God's firstborn son is sacrificed to redeem an entire nation. So, now it's time for what Vince likes to call the bad news. <clears throat> Turning to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is for me the most painful verse in the entire chapter. And it occurs right here in the middle of the chapter. Now the chapters are the way we as humans divided it up so that we could study and reference it. So there's, sometimes this might be just kind of interesting, but I do think that in the, in the middle of the poem here, which is what prophecy in the Bible are written as, they're written as poems. In the middle of the poem, we have the turn. If you study poetry... You know that every poem has a point in which it sort of turns from the beginning to the end. And, and very good poems, that that is the moment that changes everything in the poem. And that's what this verse is, in my opinion. The problem is the time. 
The time is the problem here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. God is patient to wait for the course of history to go forward. He is patient to hit us with the spiritual two-by-four so that we can get the message. He is patient, but even he runs out of time. Because there has to be a time in which the judgment has to be made. Because if God keeps all of his promises, he has to bring the thing to an end. Right? Right? So we're living in an age in which we are very interested in justice in the past year or so. Not that we weren't interested in justice before, but it's risen to the level in which we're all very conscious about how our system is just economically, socially, racially, politically, right? We're very interested in justice. And here's the problem. I heard someone speaking about this recently. Just because we, make, we change the rule or punish the guy or arrest the criminal isn't justice. That's accountability, Justice is making what went wrong right again. But guess what? That means that you have to burn the whole system to the ground. But guess what? You don't get to hold the gasoline. Because you're the one that's messing it up, people. God is going to revolutionize everything one day. TikTok. Right? The clock is running down because at some point he's got to make it right. What's very interesting is if you go to the book of Revelation and you see this majestic scene in which John is brought up into the celestial throne room of God, in the throne room, there are the souls of those who have been martyred for the gospel who are crying out to God, When are you going to avenge us? And God said, Not yet. It's not the time yet. But guess what? The whole book of Revelation is John seeing when it's time yet. Right? God says, time's up, everybody. We are not promised individually or collectively tomorrow. At any moment, God can come around and say, time's up. As an ancient commentator said on this verse, seek the Lord while he may be found before the verdict is promulgated while he still can say to you, seek me. Find me. A pastor in Boise, Idaho that was, I again, this is another Twitter quote, but I thought this was brilliant. Someone quote tweeted this to me. Uh, and I found it on my Twitter feed. Yes, I'm on Twitter, kids. So um, not on TikTok because I'm too old. Um, no, it's a joke. Okay. So his name is Ben Kremer, and he's a pastor in Boise, Idaho. And he says, imagine if our Christian view of the end times was centered on preparing for the return of Christ and not the appearance of the Antichrist. Guess what, people? The Antichrist loses in the middle He doesn't make it to the end. Two words for you is how you can sum up Revelation. Jesus wins. But guess what? Not all y'all are going to be on the winning team. That's what we call the bad news. 
okay? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, we're going to enter into a section as we start reading this, and we're going to talk about how the gospel revolutionized and redirected the way I have lived my life. And this is one of those events. Okay, so in verse 7, this is where it's going to be a painful memory for me, so I just have to prepare my heart. Sorry, okay. So verse 7. Let the wicked abandon his way and the unrighteous person his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And for the bad news in verse 6, this is the good news. That it's not just the good people that get to return to God, it's the bad people that get to return to God too. That the offer to come to me is the offer to abandon the ways of unrighteousness and seek the ways of the Lord. And he will have compassion on them. Not may have compassion on them, might think about having compassion on them. He will have compassion on them because he will abundantly pardon. Those are not conditional verbs, they are definitive verbs. That is good news. Here's the problem. G.K. Chesterton, who was a uh, somewhat snarky commentator at the beginning of the 20th century. If you haven't read G.K. Chesterton, you should go. He's really funny. Um, he writes in his book, he was, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Let's talk about 1992. 1992 was a very interesting year for all of us. For me, it was the worst year of my entire life. In June of 1992, my grandfather, who I loved, died of emphysema. He'd been dying from, if you know anyone with emphysema or COPD, you know they're dying for a long time. But finally, he died in June. In September, my best friend put a gun in her mouth and shot out the back of her head. In October, a girl that I grew up with from kindergarten decided to do the exact same thing. And in November, I was put at my school, I found this out later, on suicide watch because they thought I was going to be number three. It was the worst year of my life. And in that year, that childlike faith that I had became to crumble. How could you do this, God, to them? My grandfather, who loved you, went to church every day, had the key, opened the door. He was there. You let him die. Danita and Lindsay, you let them die. Why did you do this to me? to all of this, to them. And at 13 years old, I had that scene from Forrest Gump where he fights with God in the storm. When they made that movie, I was like, okay, why are you talking about my life right now? Because that is what I went through for a solid year. And the way I solved that problem was, I'm going to get into this thing, and I'm going to figure out what I misunderstood. Either this book is wrong, or I am. And I started digging into all these passages. I went to a very weird place 
where I tried to become kosher and stop eating shrimp for about a year, and that lasted until I went to Shoney's one day. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, was, I went way off. We, we went off the cliff in 1992 at 13 years old. But in the end, God proved himself faithfully to me. He proved himself faithfully to me in those passages at the end of the book in which he says, I'm going to make the world right again. I'm in control and I am big enough to take all of the anger you have at me. Yell as much as you want to, Andrew. Scream as much as you want to. I can take it. In the book of Job, it's the wonderful example in which people are trying to figure out why Job is suffering so much. They spend the entire book on the wrong answer, which is that Job has sinned and he deserves it. And God comes at the end, he never answers the question whether Job sins or not. Do you know what he says? Who are you to talk to me like this? Who are you to think that you know how I work? Did you make the planet? Did you make the universe? Did you hold the stars in place? You do not. He never answers Job's question, but in the end, Job understands who, who God is and who he is in relationship. And in that way, Job returns back to God, and God makes right for Job everything that he did to him. And it's an allegory of the way God works with all of us. Not all of us are going to get everything we want back in this life. We're not, because that's not the promise. The promise is not, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna make everything right when you want me to. The promise is, I'm gonna make everything right, full stop, period. I'm gonna do it in my time. <clears throat> we return to Ben Krimmer for the second point. What, imagine, if our Christian view of the end times was centered on bearing the mark of the lamb than fearing the mark of the beast? Again, we are so concerned with the end of the story and, well, and not concerned about whether we're going to be on the winning side at the end of the story. See, the Bible's response to here is, seek the Lord while he may be found. His, the verse 7 tells us what we need to do. Let the wicked abandon his ways and the unrighteous person his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon him. The way we win in the end is to begin the winning now. Because the restoration begins with you, in your heart, and your relationship to God. That's the low point in all of our life. That was the low point for me in 1992, and it has been not always straight up, but up from there. Let's go to verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and your thoughts than my thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it to produce and sprout, and provide seed for the sower and bread for the eater. These three verses right here, 8, 9, and 10... If I have life verses, these are them. And these are them because I started putting them to memory as I entered into my call to ministry before I even knew I was being called to ministry. 
Right? These are the verses that have come back and repeat themselves in my life over and over again. So an ancient commentator says of these, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts. That is, the laws of God are not like the laws of man. For as you, for as with us, when someone confess in judgment, we find him guilty. But as for me, God, whoever confesses and gives up his evil ways is granted pardon. So in 2001, I went on my first international mission trip. And I will commend to you who are Christians to do that. To go to a culture that is not your own, to a people that is not your people, as the scriptures would say, and take the gospel to them. To not go on to some sort of spiritual vacation where you get to take pictures with children and do cute little things and get hugs, but where it is hard. So in 2001, I went to Paris, France to start working uh, with my church with a Muslim background believer. So uh, this is still true today. People from North Africa, when they want to migrate to a better country, they go north as well across the Mediterranean to either Spain, Germany, or France because that's where the jobs are, right? And if they come, usually the ones that are going to France are the ones that come from a French-speaking country in Africa where they already sort of speak French, right? So it's easier for them. So many of these Muslim background believers in sub-Saharan Africa, sorry, Muslim background peoples in sub-Saharan Africa go to France to find a job. And this is gonna be true in the next story I'm gonna tell you as well. So I was going to work with those people with my church. And so we went into some inner city places of Paris, right? There's like the Eiffel Tower and like the Champs-Élysées and like the ones with the pretty pictures. I'm a couple of streets off of that. I'm in the part where, let's just say this story will explain how not photographic Paris we were in. So I'm with the missionary and we're walking and we're handing out these flyers and putting them in the mail boxes about a TV station in Arabic language uh, that is a Christian station that proclaims the gospel. Because these people don't watch French TV because why would they watch white people? They don't care about white people. They watch their own television in their own language which is Arabic for a lot of times, or other languages. So we were handing out flyers about this. And we turn a corner around an apartment building and see a burned out car. We are not in Kansas anymore. And (laughs) somewhere between my fear and the Holy Spirit was telling me, you in danger, girl. You need to get gone, right? So I'm going... Are you sure? The missionary doesn't see this. And I don't really know why this, the, Lord, the missionary sees this. All I can think is that the Lord veiled their eyes to lead me to this place. So we go walking down the street towards this burned out car. And as you get closer, you realize there's about four or five young dudes sitting on the car with weapons. You endanger girl. And I say to the missionary again, are you sure we need to go out? And he's fiddling with this door that's locked and trying to figure out why it's locked. And I'm like, we need to go. He finally looks up and sees and goes, yeah, we should probably go. It's too late. We start walking back around the building and the five people start walking after us. And they're walking faster than us. And we walk around the building. As we go around the corner, he says to me, whatever you do, don't look back. Okay. 
And I start walking down the street, looking down the street, not looking back, pointedly not looking back, by the way. I'm not going to look back. And I start praying. And the prayer that came to my heart was this, God, I don't know if you're going to kill me right now, but I want you to be glorified in my life if you are. And make it fast. (laughs) If you're going to kill me, be glorified, but make it quick, please. As soon as I said that, something went past my head and hit the wall in front of me. It was the metal pole that comes out of a chain link fence. All I can believe is that if you can throw a metal pole at me, you have to be close enough to not really miss me. So I don't know why the pole missed me except for an angel going, boop. I mean, I don't know. We're gonna, that's going to be one of the questions I'm going to ask Jesus. What about the metal pole in 2001? He's going to be like, oh, that's a good story. Okay, so <clears throat> the metal pole hits the wall in front of me just as we find a door that is open to get off the street. The missionary opens the door. He goes to the door. I go to the door. We close the door, and the five people come up to the window, and they can't get in, and they keep going. And in that moment, I realized because I thought about the prayer that I prayed, that the gospel is the most important thing in my entire life. And I was going to do whatever it took to make sure that people knew about that. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time or what that was going to look like. So this is part of that arc of discovery, everyone, is what today is. Okay? Now, The second pivotal event about this occurred after my call to ministry. So I received my call to ministry in 2006 at a Bible conference while I was in graduate school in which which David Platt was speaking. This was before David Platt was David Platt. If you know who David Platt is. He was speaking at the conference and he said to us, he pointed directly to me, and I'm pointing to Bradley because, sorry, you're in the front row, you get it. So he pointed directly at me like this and said, if you compartmentalize God in your life, you do not love him with all of your heart. Boom! That hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized that's what I was doing to God. I had promised to him in 2001 that I was going to make the gospel the most important thing of my life. And it was important in my life, but I wasn't making it important in other people's lives. And I realized that I needed to start doing that. So I left my PhD program that I was in that was causing me all sorts of stress and not joy. I'm recondoed my graduate career, is what we're saying. And I went to Kansas City, Missouri to go to, to, go to seminary. And that led me to, leading my, to meeting my beautiful wife. That's a long story. We're not going to put that on tape. For those of you who know the story, it's a funny story. Anyway, um, uh, I knew her before we could date. Let's just say it that way. Because um, she was underage. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, I worked at a church. And in that church, we decided to go on an international mission trip. And the place we decided to go was in the heart of West Africa. To a country called Mali. 
And I went to a village that is on the border between Mali and Mauritania, which is in the middle of nowhere. It is one of five places that is one of the hottest inhabitable places in the world. And we went in the height of the summer because we're stupid white people. And I say that because every time we went to the village, they would look at us like, why are you here? We don't even want to be here right now. <laughs> so we went to these villages to start building a relationship with them. So the first village we went to was very friendly and they received us very warmly. They gave us all sorts of things. I sat in the hut with the chief and this is why it's good to be a man in Africa because you get to sit in the shade and the women have to sit in the sun. Sorry, ladies, that's just the way it is. And so my friend Cassie had to kill a chicken with basically a butter knife while I was drinking tea. So that was fun. <clears throat> but in that village, we tried to talk about the gospel and they... We're not interested. Very nice people, but not interested in the gospel at all. Okay, so we left that village. We took the message. We went to the next village. The next village did not want us to be there. And I know they did not want us to be there because I had to be a personally approved by three different leaders in the village who all hated each other. So I get to the village and I go to the chief's house and he says, oh, I can't talk to you until the governor tells you if I can say that to you. So he sends me down the road to the, the only sort of Western-style mansion in the whole village, which is the provincial governor's house. And I walked in his house, and it was like, if you ever see those pictures of uh, like Vladimir Putin or something like that, and they have the marble floors and the pictures of the wall, and you look like those people are going to die, that's where I was at. Not speaking a word of the language that these people were, and my interpreter was like, I think we're going to die. <clears throat> Past, the, gov the governor decided he, he liked me for some reason, uh, and so he said, well, I can't really approve you being here until you talk to the imam of the village. So we get sent down the road again to the, the imam. Well, the imam can't be bothered talking to the white Christians from America, so he sends his brother. Now, remember that story about Paris? This time, the metal object that came past my house was moving a little bit slower, so that I was able to look and see what it was, and it was the barrel of a gun. Because the guard was standing right behind me, waiting for the imam to tell, mom's brother to tell him what he was supposed to do with me. I passed the test because I'm still here. So then he sends us back to the chief and the chief talks to me. Now, and the chief does the formalities and that's fine. Here's some tea and blah, blah, blah. You were like some blah, 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 blah. We went to the thing. But, you know, I'd gone through the rigmarole and known that this was just what was nice. Okay, so we're like, okay. And he goes, well, it's late. I, I think you need to stay here. I don't want to send you on your way back to the main city at nighttime. So you just can stay here in my compound over the night. Okay, but it was, it was very kind of formal and not very friendly, basically, is what I'm saying. Like, okay, we eat dinner. And later that night, the chief and his, what I call the political attache, the one guy that the three leaders all liked, and that was the guy who was leading us around, came and they said, we have a couple of questions for you that the imam won't answer for us. Will you answer the questions for us? I'm like, Sure. And I had perhaps the most detailed conversation from Genesis through the Gospels about the Bible I have ever had in my entire life. They asked questions that I was not even learning about in seminary, and it was only the Holy Spirit that gave me the correct answer. The moral of that particular story is this. You never know who is open to the Gospel until you ask them. Just because someone is nice to your face doesn't mean that they're not pushing you away with both hands. 
And just because someone is pushing you away with both hands doesn't mean they are not open to what you have to say to them. And that event changed me because in the middle of the desert of Africa, where it was so hot that one night I had a dream that I was a rotisserie chicken because I was turning over on the spit. (laughs) Where it was so hot that my friend Cassie and I were fighting over who was going to drink the last of the rehydration solution, and we were both trying to be the bigger Christian and give it to the other one. (laughs) Where it was so hot that the electricity would go off in the hotel that we stayed at because we turned a light on, and the air conditioners in the rest of the building were pulling too much power. It was in that place, in the desert, that I figured out who I was supposed to be. I knew that I had a passion for missions, but I realized that I was not to be the missionary. I'm supposed to be the guy who sits here in America and convinces all of you to be the missionary. And so I have dedicated my life to discipleship, to teaching people about the word and to studying it and proclaiming it so that I can inspire you to take the gospel to your next door neighbor as far and as far as to the nations in the farthest part of the earth. That's the job God has given me. Verse 11, for my word will, which goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the purpose for which I have sent it. That is the message and the promise of the gospel. William Wilberforce, who changed the world by convincing the British Parliament to do away with slavery, wrote in his journal, there are four things we ought to do with the word of God. Admit that it is the word of God. Commit it to our hearts and our minds. Submit it submit to it, and then transmit it to the world. First of all, we need to admit that the Bible is the word of God. Now, this is not something that is evident, and as you may have seen every Easter and Christmas on the Discovery Channel, there are many very educated people who do not want to accept that. And the Bible tells us the answer for that. In 1 Corinthians, it says, this is not revealed to you, Because your eyes have been blinded, because you have not been made aware of the wisdom of God. We must commit it to our hearts and minds. That's something that we in America struggle with because we are so well educated as a people. Like I said, I went to the middle of Africa with this little tribe who have three different people all vying for control of it. And the leader of the village, which in their culture is supposed to be the most spiritual person after the imam, didn't know why Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. And I, like I said, I had these, it was a wonderful conversation with them and the the interpreter's interpreting for me and he said he didn't know these answers either. No one had taken the word to them. They were craving it. So much that they would ask this white dude who literally just appeared on their doorstep earlier this morning what the Bible meant. We have hundreds of copies of the scripture per person, per capita in America, and we don't know what it says. 
And we let people go and tell us what it means who don't believe it. I'm on my bully pulpit if, if you don't know. I'm, get, I'm getting a word right now. Now, <clears throat> we need to commit it to our hearts and our minds. Tony Evans, who's a wonderful African-American pastor who I have, known, I have not known him personally, but I have, been, I have benefited fruitfully from his ministry for many years. If you don't know him, you should look him up. He will blow your socks off with his preaching. He says, we are facing a massive values transfer failure because we have neglected to tell those under our care about what God has done in our lives. He goes on to say, the transferring of kingdom values as clearly outlined in the scripture takes place person to person and heart to heart. Transferring kingdom values must take place on a regular basis through reminders and authentic conversations. It is not only done through seminars, books, and radio broadcasts. Those things are good, but they are supplementary. So I'm going to ask you a pointed question. So buckle your seatbelts. When is the last time you talked about the Bible to someone who's not here at this church on a Sunday? When was the last time in your daily, not Sunday life, that you talked to someone who you didn't know if they were a Christian or not about the Bible? I'm marginally so, and I'm the guy who's telling you to do it. I have conversations with my colleagues at the school that I work at. Some of them may be Christians. Some of them may not be Christians. Some of them may think they're Christians, and I'm, not, I'm still trying to figure out if they are or they aren't. But we struggle with that because we don't make that a value in our life is what I'm saying. We don't make that an intentional part of our daily walk. And we need to. We need to commit the word to our hearts and minds, submit to it because it tells us to do it, and then transmit it to the world. Jeffrey So, an an Asian believer, I I think he's Korean, but I couldn't find the background of this, so I'm sorry, Jeffrey, if you're watching. Anyway, um, He says, church growth is not about ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash, but about DEF, discipleship, evangelism, and fellowship. And we in America are not really good at those. Vince will tell you when he goes and talks to other pastors, more often than not, sometimes people come and talk to you and ask about, well, what you running this year? How's your budget? Oh, I heard you got a new building. When we should be asking people, how's your walk? What was the last time you talked the gospel to someone who was not a believer? Is, how can I pray for you? How can I love you? How can I support you? We need to refix our mind from top to bottom about how we do church here in America. <clears throat> So now we're going to get to the end of the the passage and working towards a close here, sorry. Uh, Verse 12, you will go out with joy and be led in peace. The mountains and the hills will break into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. This sounds good, but it's bad because this, my friends, is the end of the book. This is Revelation. Right, we all get real interested, as Ben Kramer would say, in our view, our Christian view of the end times is centered on escaping the redemption of the earth. Now, I'm not going to get into eschatology and 
when the timing is, and I don't have a seven-foot backboard with a map with arrows on it to tell you when Jesus is coming back. But guess what? You're not promised that you don't get to escape the fires. Jesus said, I bring a sword and not peace. I'm going to rend you brother from brother, father from son, mother from daughter. We all want to get our fire insurance card in the church so that we can punch it out, get on the celestial elevator and not feel the pain. But you are not promised that. You are promised instead to be part of the victory march of God, but that doesn't mean that you were the winner. So if you go through the scriptures and you look at this phrase, clap their hands, it occurs two other places. One's in Psalm 98, the other's in Ezekiel 25. Whenever nature claps their hands, that means God is destroying everything and showing how glorious he is. Because nature is clapping their hands because the humans are being judged. See, because it's not just human-to-human sin that corrupts the world. Humans are also corrupting the world. We are hurting the planet, and this is not a message about recycling your aluminum cans. This is a message about how thorns and thistles are in the fields because of us. We lived in a garden, and now we live in the wilderness because of our sin, and nature is ready for it to be redeemed. Right? We don't think of the trees clapping their hands because God is leading us all with hooks in our nose as he conquers and destroys our world that we have built to redeem his own. So Ben Krimer says, imagine if, we, if our Christian view of the end times were centered on preparing for the redeeming of the earth instead of escaping it. Part of what we do is work as the servants of God in his redemption of the world. We have all lost someone at some time. And we've all asked why. It may be a father or a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend, a child, a loved one. And oftentimes, the hardest ones to get our brains around are the ones that make no sense. Why did they have to die? My grandfather had to die because he was a lifelong smoker. Easy enough. He did it to himself. But why did my friend have to kill herself in the eighth grade? Why did she do that? Because she was alone, afraid, and unloved. That's a hard lesson for us all to live with. That's part of the redemption of the earth. That we are going to restore to all of those lost ones what our sin took from them. God is going to redeem them in some way that I am going to be amazed by, glorifying God when he does it. I don't know what that looks like. 
but everything is going to be made right. That's the promise at the end of the story, right? <clears throat> Verse tw- 13, after you think. So now we have the good news. Instead of the thorn bush, the juniper will come up. Instead of the stinging nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be eliminated. What's interesting about this is the it, by the way, in the middle. The it is the transformation of the desert into a paradise. The the thorn and the nettle are plants that are commonly and characteristically depicted in Scripture as desert plants. When you see those plants, you know you are way away from the city. You are in the middle of nowhere. There is no water. There is no hope for you. And junipers and myrtle trees are agricultural trees. They're trees that have to be watered and taken care of. The juniper, or cypress as it's sometimes translated, is a valuable wood tree. It's the tree that characterizes the land we now call Lebanon. In fact, if you go and see the flag of Lebanon, it has the cedar or cypress tree on it. And the Ottomans, when they conquered that land, cut down all the trees because they were trying to t- send a message to the people they were conquering. Your beautiful trees are gone now. And guess what they did? They planted them back. And they're still transforming it throughout the land. If you go to Israel, there's a fund you can give money to where they plant trees to restore the land back to the way it was before it was destroyed and devastated. But those trees are also a pleasant habitation for animals. They're representative of of the idea of bounty and beauty, of of well-wateredness. So we're going from no hope, no water to the beautiful garden of God again. Isaiah, sorry, Psalm, I'm word, Psalm 104. I'm going to read a passage of this. Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, and they flow between the hills. You give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for men to cultivate, that they may bring food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to sustain his heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, and the cedars of Lebanon that he has planted. In in them the birds build their nest, the stork has made her home in the fir trees, and the high mountains are for wild goats, and the rocks are the refuge for the badgers." Now, in that passage, I don't know if you heard, there were a lot of similar phrases that occur here in Isaiah 55. Bread for the eater and seed for the sower, water for the land. I will bring forth the produce. This is a recurring promise that God has made to us. It's a promise that he is going to make right everything that has gone wrong in our world. And he does that through his gospel. Right? Jesus uses all sorts of agricultural images in the Gospels for a reason. He's a gardener planting a garden in us. And then we help him plant the garden in the world. He's going to turn the desert where there is no hope into a lush paradise where all animals live. Right? Some of these animals, the wild donkeys, those aren't domesticated donkeys. They're wild donkeys. God cares about them too. Right? 
<laughs> and the promise here is one that we will be redeemed. An ancient commentator said, the Torah, that is for him, the scripture, was given through three things, through fire, through water, and through the desert. In his comment, he's talking about the journey of Israel out through the Exodus in which they get the, the commands of God at Mount Sinai. But those three things are also true of us. In Matthew 13, we learn about the four soils. The sower went out, he cast a seed, and some seed fell on the path, and it did not sprout. And some seed fell on the rocky ground and sprouted, but didn't survive. And some seed fell among the thorns and survived, but couldn't produce fruit. But some seed was sown in the good ground, and it produced a harvest 30, 60, or 100-fold. The fire is the path, the place where it is hard to understand the gospel. But we are still supposed to sow the seed there in the place with no hope, where it's too hot and the electricity goes out and you feel like a rotisserie chicken. That is a place in which there may be interest, but no passion for the gospel that you give. Water, for me, represents the shallow ground where you can have a root and you can, you can start to grow. There's a little sustenance there, but, but you're not going to make it. You're too shallow in your understanding. Right, the giving the gospel and evangelism is not enough. The next step is to take your little baby Christian and help to feed you and grow you till you can feed yourself. And we fail that a lot because we go and throw tracks at people at Halloween or whatever holiday we're doing, right? Hand it out with the candy and we don't talk to them about what that means. We don't disciple and mentor people. And so we get a passion for the gospel but without a commitment for it. And then the hardest one, the one I think is so interesting, is because we go from, from rocky ground to thorny ground, from water to the desert. We go to the place where your faith is tested and it's hardened or it's made true. That's the part of discipleship we don't like, right? We like having the nice little flannel graph where we get to talk about Jesus wanting the little lambs to come to him and everything is precious moments and soft-focused. We don't like when Jesus braids a whip and whips us too. <clears throat> we don't like it in the desert where we have to depend on God, where our commitment has to take on depth. Elijah told God he went to die. And God said, mm, I have some work for you. Also, here's a snack and take a nap and you'll feel better. He woke up and he walked a little bit further. And he's like, God, I want to die. And he's like, mm, here's a snack, take a nap. I still have some work for you. And then he went to the, the mountain of God and God appeared to him and said, I need you to do these four things. Now, you are also like Elijah. You may be in the desert right now and wanting to die. You may be in the desert and thinking God doesn't care about you. And he's saying, mm, here's a Snickers bar, take a nap. We got some work to do. It's in those moments when we only have God that we realize that we have only ever had God. And it is in the desert that we see the memorial, the everlasting sign that will not be eliminated. It's only there that we see that the thorns and the nettles are hiding for us the true garden behind the pain, which is 
the promise of God. So, with that, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take our communion. Dearest Father, we thank you that you lead us into the dry places in life, but that your word will water the grounds. That in the desert, you will bring forth a garden. In the dry ground, you will bring forth a harvest. In our hearts, you will bring forth a redemption, a restoration, a renewal, a commitment to a new life. I thank you, Lord, for the days and the years of pain that you have put in my heart and put into my life. I thank you for all those experiences in which I needed you more than anything else and found that I have only ever needed you more than anything else. I thank you, Lord, for what you've brought me through. I thank you, Lord, for what you are bringing us through. I thank you, Lord, that you are making all things right and that you call even today. Come, you who thirst, and I will give you water. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.